One of the richest sources of inspiration and instruction for Christians is found in the biographies of godly men and women from past history. However, some biographies are more inspirational than others. And that's because I found that they generally fall into two categories. Uh, there's a category of biography that is written by authors who are primarily interested in presenting the facts about a person's external life and experience, uh, where they were born, how they lived as a child, uh, who they met and married, the times in which they lived, the people they met, and so on. But then there's the category that I prefer, <clears throat> which does uh, give you the facts, but then it also opens up a little window into the person's inner life. Often those insights are gleaned from their diary. Uh, sometimes it's from their personal correspondence or even observations from people who have been the closest to them. Yet even in a biography that tells you something about a person's inner life and experience, you rarely encounter any openness when it comes to the temptations that they faced. In fact, during the Puritan era, and even long after that, when uh, keeping a diary was a common practice of spiritual discipline, uh, there were men and women whose lives, I mean, you'd give your right arm to know more about them, but they left instructions on their deathbed to see to it that all their diaries were burned. So there are some really tremendous spiritual figures about whom we know very little when it comes to what was really going on inside of them. Now, I can certainly understand that. I'm not sure I want the world knowing what's going on inside my head <laughs> all the time, but this is one aspect that makes the Scripture unique to us. Because here and there, the Lord does allow us to see some of the temptations that men and women have faced and the snares into which they have sometimes fallen. For example, we know a great deal about King David and his temptations. We even have his diaries, as it were, with all the feelings and inner thoughts that he expressed within the Psalms. We can read about the temptations of Abraham and Moses, many other godly characters in the Bible. Unfortunately, some of them did not overcome their temptations, but some of them did, and we have a record of those victories as well. So it really is tremendously helpful when God tells us that His own Son was tempted in all points, just like we are. And I do hope that you will never doubt that. I hope that you'll never be tempted to think that the statement in Hebrews 4.15 is a bit of an exaggeration, or that it fails to take in the extreme temptations that you've faced in life. But don't deny the reality of this testimony that God is giving about His Son. He really was in all points tempted as we are, and the only distinction is that His temptations were, as it says, without sin. Now that doesn't mean what we initially interpret it to mean. 
It doesn't mean that he was tempted in all points as we are, yet he never committed a sin. That's how we typically look at it. But when it says, yet without sin, it's talking about the fact that his temptation was in every respect like ours, apart from the fact that it never arose from within him. That's because he didn't have a sin nature. When it comes to our uh, temptations, we often give in because our sin nature is answering the call from those temptations. We have, as it were, an inner traitor that joins forces with those temptations and causes us to sin. Well, he was tempted in all points. He was tempted just like we're tempted, apart from having sin as a nature within his being that rose up to those temptations. And with that in mind, it really is wonderful then that God tells us about some of the temptations our Lord experienced. Of course, our mind immediately goes to the temptations in Matthew 4, or the, uh, the parallel accounts in uh, Mark and Luke, but there are others described in the gospel records. However, in our series, we are looking at these three, and the last of them is our focus for today. So, without reading the entire account, let's read from verses 8 to 12. Following the first two temptations to do wrong, verse 8 says, Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now, the three temptations recorded here fall into three categories. The first one, as we saw, was a temptation regarding Jesus' physical nature or his humanity. It was the temptation to use his deity independently of the will of God for him at this point in his existence in order to satisfy the natural bodily needs of his humanity. In other words, it's not that he couldn't turn the stones to bread. He certainly could. In fact, uh, he produced bread from nothing when he fed 5,000 later on in his ministry. But it wasn't God's will for him to do so on this occasion. And he was living by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, when our Lord passed that temptation without faltering, the devil's next attempt was to drive him to the opposite extreme. He suggested that the Lord throw himself from a pinnacle in order to demonstrate the trust that he had just expressed in his first temptation. He was tempted to demonstrate his trust in God to the extreme, to put himself in a position of no return. I mean, no possibility of survival without divine supernatural intervention. In other words, he professed complete, absolute trust in God. Okay, let's just put that to the test. But once again, the Lord quoted Scripture and resisted the temptation to presume upon the miraculous activity or intervention of God. 
Well, this third temptation falls into a new category, and so I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of the temptation to obtain God's will unlawfully. Our Lord said, it is written in the law because he was being tempted to obtain God's will unlawfully. Let's begin, and I want to remind you as we begin that the primary purpose, again, for God recording these temptations is not so much to tell you something about yourself. It's not so much to apply this passage in your own dealings with uh, your seductions to evil, but the primary purpose for this account is to tell us something about Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you this morning to be interested in Him before you are interested in In yourself, let's think about Christ. Let's be impressed with His glory again and what a magnificent Savior has been provided for us. One who went through all of these temptations on your behalf. So let's let's just take that direction in our minds long before we stoop to the level of only thinking in terms of our daily living. And yes, there will be some clear applications for us, but the thrust needs to be on Christ as we look at this passage. Now, first of all, the Holy Spirit wants us to know the place where this occurred. And I simply want to point out that the place of his temptation was in keeping with what was being offered. Now, I'm sure we understand that the mountain was not necessary in order to gain a vantage point for what was being presented to Jesus. In fact, there really is no mountain on earth from which you can get the kind of view that Jesus was going to have. So the whole point of taking him on an exceedingly high mountain was just to elevate him to a place of isolation that suggested in his mind what was being offered. I mean, even if you stood on top of Mount Everest, you couldn't begin to see all that the devil showed Jesus And yet you feel as if you're on top of the world because you're up so high, you can see so much. And that's the idea in the passage. Although notice that the temptation did come through sight. That's the means of his temptation. Verse 8 again, the devil showed him. Uh, This is what 1 John 2.16 calls the lust of the what? Lust of the eyes which doesn't mean that the eyes themselves are lusting, like we have sinful eyes, but it's talking about the desirable sights that come through the eyes. There's the lust of the flesh or the desires that arise from within, and then there are those that are being drawn out by the lust of the eyes, by the desirable objects or experiences that our eyes behold. Of course, this is the same kind of thing that Satan used when he appealed to Eve. Scripture says that when she fell, it was because she was considering the fruit through her eyes. And when she saw that it was indeed good for food and delightful to the sight, she ate. It was when Achan saw a beautiful garment. He spied the silver and gold in the tent. Uh, with all those spoils of battle, and that was when he fell. This was David's fall, when he saw a beautiful woman washing herself 
uh, on the roof of her house. And Simon Magus fell in the book of Acts when he saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. When we were children, we were taught that little chorus, so be careful, little eyes, what you see, which is also good advice for adults, by the way. And now, even our Lord is being solicited through the eye gate. This is one of the channels that affects who and what we are inside. Thirdly, notice the object of the temptation that the Lord was shown in verse 8. It was all the kingdoms of the world. And that clearly tells us now that this is not a natural vision. The Bible doesn't explain it, but something was conjured up. Something was projected before his mind, supernaturally, satanically. And Luke's Gospel says that it happened in a moment of time. So we're talking about something that came with the splendor of a shocking, momentary display. Kind of a a fireworks explosion. A collage, perhaps, presenting the kingdoms of the world in all of their glory. Now just think of what was in that vision in the Lord's mind. Of course, there was Rome with all of its glories, all of the empires that had swallowed up from the past. There was Greece, Bithynia, Sardis, Syria, and of course, Judea, the place of his own people. But then uh, there had to be kingdoms that the people in the Roman world knew nothing about. There was the Chinese civilization, the Han civilization, filled with its own glories. There was all of Europe with its forest tribes. When you think of the Western Hemisphere, yet undiscovered by the known world, you have the Americas with their nomadic hunters and jungle dwellers and forest Indians and vast plains. And you have Africa with the Serengeti and the hidden gold and its treasures of diamonds and India ruled by the Kushan Empire with its Silk Road and its trade, spices, and all of this in a moment of time is displayed before the eyes of our Lord. It appears in a mesmerizing kaleidoscope, as it were, of pageantry and color and all of its brilliant might, all of its power, all of its festivities. It's You can imagine it would just be overwhelming the senses as he stands near the peak of this high mountain. Now I want to pause to make the observation here that this is an unintentional tribute that Satan is giving to Jesus. In other words, you know something about the greatness of an individual by the magnitude of what it takes to tempt him. And in this case, Satan realizes that he must offer Jesus nothing less than everything. Uh, In other words, nothing short of that would have any possible appeal to this person. Why not? Well, let me remind you that the two previous temptations were based on the recognition that this person is the Son of God. Uh, You remember Satan said, if you are the Son of God, and he wasn't questioning that, he was actually making a concession. It should be translated, since you are the Son of God. Well, 
Those words are not repeated here because now it's entirely taken for granted. So given the incredible, unique fact of his sonship, look, all right, let me offer you all the kingdoms of the world. You can see that the appeal is really based on a recognition of his stature and his position. And nothing apart from everything will contain any possible temptation to him given who he is. Now, that brings me to this. I want to very carefully examine the appeal of the temptation being given. Look at verse 9. All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. All right. Let's just take those words, phrase by phrase, and note what lies behind them. For example, all these things. Now, that's obviously pointing back to all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. It's the universality of the offer without exception. Now, then you have this statement, I will give. And behind that offer lies an unexpressed fact. It's an unexpressed fact that Jesus himself cannot dispute. I mean, how dare the devil make this kind of a claim? I will give? Right? How, can, how can all of this be his to give in the first place? And yet, Scripture actually tells us on what basis he could make such an offer. 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls him the God of this world. Think that's an exaggeration? Ephesians 2.2 tells us that he energizes the children of disobedience. And it's universal because he goes on to say, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. So he energizes all the children of disobedience, which is the lost, including Christians before they were saved. In 1 John 5.19, it says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And finally, Jesus refers to this being as the ruler of this world three times in John's Gospel. So, the I will give from Satan can be taken for granted and not disputed because he really does have this kind of power in the world. And yet, he's not the maker of those kingdoms. He's not the sustainer of this creation because he is not its rightful Lord. So think of this. There are temptations that appeal powerfully to our minds because they play on our desires or the things that we want to have. For example, we are seduced with the possibility of pleasure. We see it, we want it. But then there are other temptations that appeal to something else inside of us, and they actually provoke us. They needle us. They incite us with the facts. So what was it like for Jesus of Nazareth, who is everything that Hebrews 1 says he is, Hebrews says that God made the ages through him. It says all things are sustained by his power. It says that he is the one to whom the Father has given the scepter 
to rule. And yet this demonic personality says to him in the height of his arrogance, I will give to you. Surely this temptation contains provocation to Jesus internally as well as a seduction externally. Just think of the you in that appeal. And I call attention to that because this is the person to whom they're supposed to belong. You could fill out that concept with hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. He is the one to whom these things are promised. It's the you who have taken flesh for the very purpose of claiming them or reclaiming them and reigning over them. And now the cost for you to have them right now is a single act of homage. If you will just fall down and worship me just this one time. Now think of what that unfolds to the imagination. Because it's by a single act of worship that Jesus is basically offered everything that he came to obtain by means of a laborious life, an excruciating death, a descent into Hades, and finally a resurrection, a marked body. I mean, he's a man of sorrows for his entire earthly ministry, Scripture says, and yet it appears that all of that can be escaped with a single act of homage. Now, we need to remember, of course, that at this point in his life, Jesus already knows something about the difficulty of his path. Because for the past 30 years, he's been a common laborer in a peasant's home. He's identified himself with sinners at his baptism. However, the most difficult part of his journey, the pinnacle of his suffering, well, that's yet to come. When it does come, you remember the agony is so great, he's literally going to sweat blood over it. But you see, Here's the end goal. He's come to obtain the kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul teaches that by him, God intends to subdue everything back to himself because all of human history has been arrogant, has been in rebellion, has been against God for all of these centuries. Uh, Paul Bunyan writes about this in his book, The Holy War. He talks about uh, the conquering of Mansoul, uh, the city of Mansoul, and how Diabolus is cast out uh, out of heaven. He loses all favor. He's thrown out of heaven. And as a result, he uh, wants to strike back at God. So he looks for something in God's universe that he can conquer to get back at God. Well, he spies Mansoul. And that appeals to him and so ever since, man has been conquered. Well, here comes the rescuer, the rescuer of souls. Jesus came to subdue the world again to the rule of God. Which is why in Matthew's gospel, he went everywhere preaching about the kingdom. He's preaching about the rule of God. Well, okay, let's skip the hard part. Let's fast forward. Let's get over the painful bits. All of this I will give you for a single act of devotion. 
want you to turn to a, a similar temptation offered to a very good man in 1 Samuel 24. Just turn there in your Bibles, and I want to dip into the life of a man who is the man after God's own heart. Uh, now, we'd all say that he was a good man, and yet here is a striking parallel to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. This man is also in the wilderness in this chapter, and like our Lord, he's been there for some time. Also, like our Lord, he's under tremendous physical and mental pressure. And in that situation, he finds himself in a position where it appears that in a moment of time, he can get what God has promised him and for which he's already anointed him uh, without going through all of the painful process. The scene is a cave where David and his men have taken refuge from King Saul, who's been chasing him all around the wilderness. And unbelievably, by the providence of God in this vast Judean wilderness, out of all the caves that could have been chosen, Saul chooses to enter the same one David's hiding in in order to relieve himself. Well, back in the shadows, David and his men see the providential provision of God. And they say to David, Hey, David, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. In other words, this is the opportunity. Let's go for it. And David says, Okay. Uh, so he rises up. You can imagine slowly unsheathing his sword. His men are holding their breath. Uh, I mean, with just one blow, it would appear that all their troubles are over and the will of God has been achieved. And David tiptoes closer, but as he gets close, he stops and simply cuts off a portion of Saul's robe, which was likely near to the king. You can imagine his men are looking in disbelief. But nobody can protest, because silence, of course, is of the utmost importance. So Saul leaves unharmed, and in verse 5, we find out that it was wrong for David to do what he did. It was wrong. And it says, David's conscience bothered him. Now, have you ever found yourself in that kind of a situation? I mean, you know the will of God. You feel certain in your heart that you know God's will, and then something appears that seems to be providential. It's as if God himself designed it for you in order to make it obtainable right now. And have you ever had the experience that David did when he rose up and followed through with what was suggested and yet your conscience struck you? Well, I want to ask you a question. What would have happened to the whole scheme of redemption if David's greater son had wavered and just, just slightly damaged the express plan of God for achieving his will like David did, if he just 
I mean, just once bowed down to Satan. Think of it in this way. You and I are going to be faced with some terrific temptations in the future. For example, we have young people in our congregation, and you know that God's will is for you to marry one day. Now, maybe you have the kind of Christian character that the devil has not been able to crack in order to get you to fall to your physical appetites. And then perhaps you have faced the temptation to do something presumptuously, to take a huge leap of faith, as we talked about last time, and throw yourself from the pinnacle, as it were, so God would have to exert His supernatural power on your behalf to rescue you. Well, we need to be aware that in addition to those temptations which we might have passed, there's also this one, obtaining the will of God, but doing it in the wrong way. Well, how should we respond to that? Let's go to the Lord's answer in verses 10 and 11. And it would have been in a flash that our Lord responded, as, and He does so uh, initially with a command. Verse 10, away with you, Satan. I mean, he banishes the devil from his presence. So who do you think has been in control of the situation this whole time? Really? I think that the interpreters are right when they take the position that Satan was actually brought into this conflict unwillingly. I mean, there, there, there is the distinct possibility that he was dragged into doing this for Jesus' sake when in fact he knew he had no possibility of defeating the Son of God with his temptations. In other words, you remember that God intended these temptations to be a preparation for Jesus. He's preparing his Son for ministry. Remember Luther uh, said three things make a minister. Prayer, meditation, and what? Temptation, right? Well, it's clear that when our Lord is satisfied that his preparation through temptation was done, he commands the devil, now go, get out of here, I'm finished with you. And then our Lord does what he did on every other occasion. He quotes scripture in verse 10. It is written. You remember that he first quoted from Deuteronomy 8.3. And then he quoted from Deuteronomy 6.16. Well, now he goes back three verses to 6.13, and on each occasion, he just unsheaths the sword of the Spirit, and he parries the temptation with the exact words of God, placing God's Word between himself and that temptation. How wonderful it would be to have the Scriptures ready on our lips in the way that the Lord did. Every time I think of this passage, I remember what it says in Psalm 1, where you find the blessed man. The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Every one of these temptations is the counsel of the ungodly. But instead of that, the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law, he meditates. Meditation is what enables a person to to place God's words between himself 
and the ungodly counsel of the tempter. You know, the Holy Spirit will bring Scripture to your mind. But listen to me, He will not bring to your mind what you never put in there. Think of how many people are here this morning and how many of you are constantly struggling with defeat. I mean, you're wondering in despair if there will ever be an end. There'll ever be an answer to your problem. Well, the answer has been there all along in the law of the Lord, but you've got to meditate on it. And the next part of the verse says that it's meditation day and night. You see, that's part of the problem. How much Scripture do you take in? In any given week, how much mental preoccupation do you have with the Bible? Please don't dismiss this as an oversimplification from a simple preacher. While you're looking for all sorts of other answers to your problems, no, this is a great part of the answer. And it may be the missing piece in your puzzle. The blessed man who doesn't walk in that ungodly counsel is meditating on God's Word all the time. So if we deliberately preoccupy our minds with lesser things, even lawful things, or distracting things, we will lose in the heat of the battle. We will lose when we hear the counsel of the ungodly. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't any other areas of human knowledge and enjoyment that God intends for us to take in. He does. But I want to ask you, is Scripture your default? Does your mind return to it by nature? Is it the love of your life? Is it your life? Or are you choosing escapism? Are you choosing the advice of your unsaved workmates? Are you choosing the latest book or podcast on self-healing and disregarding Scripture as too simplistic or too hard to understand? Well, Jesus said it Himself, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. My friend, the Holy Spirit will bring Scripture to your mind and He will energize that Scripture for your life. But He will not do that with Scripture you never put into your mind. Turn your eyes on Jesus and your mind to His Word and you will be fortified in the fight. Our Lord, unsheathed the sword of the Spirit and every time he had exactly the right blade in hand. Isn't that amazing? This is the superlative illustration of what Paul was talking about in Ephesians 6 when he said that God has provided the sword of the Spirit for us, which is what? The Word of God. The term translated as Word, Word of God, Word, in that verse, it's not the term logos. That's the Greek word that is the characteristic word for Scripture. And there is a sense in which you can point to your whole Bible and say, well, this is the Logos. 
But the term that's used in Ephesians is the term rhema, the Greek term rhema, which refers to something specific that is taken out of the logos. In other words, the logos is filled with thousands of rhema. Well, the sword that I need is the exact expression out of the logos. I mean, when temptation comes, I don't wave my Bible around in the air, okay? But I pull something specific out of it, and that specific statement is the very thing that God is going to use in my moment of great weakness. Jesus illustrates this for us in a wonderful way. Now, I want to note the scripture that he quotes. There are four things I want to point out about it. Number one, the scripture he quotes teaches that worship is inseparably linked to something else. Look at the statement. You shall worship the Lord your God, but the statement doesn't end there, because you shall worship the Lord your God that is inseparably linked to what? Him only you shall serve. Worship is linked to service. So it is a lie that a single act of worship is an innocent gesture. No, that would be to serve. I mean, all of these things I'll give you if you only bow down and worship me, but you see, in the worship is service from the one who still possesses all of those things. Secondly, I want to point out that the passage he quotes teaches us what alone is lawful. Jesus is quoting from the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him what? Him only you shall serve. That alone is lawful. I'll return to that thought in a moment. But thirdly, don't you think there is the, the distinct possibility that when the Lord says you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only you shall serve, it's also a rebuke to Satan himself. I mean, given the circumstance, given the nature of the temptation, the you can just as easily be turned around to apply to the tempter himself. The book of Hebrews says that when he brought his son into the world, God said, let all the angels of God worship him. And of course, that primarily refers to the unfallen angels. But if you were in the position of this being who once bowed and worshipped, and served as the anointed cherub, as it says in the book of Ezekiel, if you're once been in that high position, but now by the, the foulest kind of insurrection, you rebelled against it with your heart filled with arrogant ambition. I will be like the Most High. Okay, now to have the Son of God say, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. What a comeback statement that would be. My daughter would say, that's a spicy reply, whatever that means. <laughs> Fourthly, I want to point out that what the Lord quotes is not only a direction for his own life, but for all mankind of what is indeed lawful. So the you is applied primarily to himself. It directs his own life. Secondly, it rebukes Satan but then it is direction for all mankind. It's a universal direction. 
Now, why do I say that it directs his life in particular? Well, because Scripture teaches that Jesus was made of a woman, made under the what? Made under the law, right? So he must live lawfully even to obtain the things that God has for him. And so must we. I want to conclude by having you turn to 2 Timothy 2 in five verses that end with this principle for Christians who want to serve the Lord, and especially young believers like Timothy, who's a pastor in Ephesus at this time. In verse 2, Paul has a mission for this young man. What is it? It says, well, he must entrust to faithful men what Paul has given to him. Well, that's the mission some of you are called to, right? Through children's church, perhaps, or youth group, or Bible studies, or care groups, or mentoring. All right. What will it take to fulfill that mission? Well, let me broaden it a little bit. What will it take to do anything that God calls you to do in this life? God has called you to be a parent. God has called you to be a student. God has called you to be a laborer, as He was on earth. God has called you to be a husband or a wife. God's called you to be a single person. You have a mission, all right? What's it going to take to stay on course within the will of God? Verse 3, what Jesus himself experienced is going to take hardship. You can't skip that part. You have to endure hardship as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's going to do it. And in verse 4, when it comes to those temptations, and believe me, there'll be many, many temptations that will come your way to skip the hard parts, especially as a young person. But I want to warn you, they will entangle you in the affairs of this life to the point where you're going to be choked. So it's necessary for you to refuse entanglement in some things that may be completely lawful, and yet they can harm you. You know what I'm talking about. Now look at verse 5. And also, if anyone competes in athletics... He's not crowned unless he competes how? According to the rules. Or lawfully. I have to wonder how many young people today have failed this temptation. They're caught up in the wrong things. They're chasing the wrong dreams. They're failing to strive for holiness in this wicked world. They refuse the straight and narrow path of righteousness that their parents taught them in order to become popular or to have what God wants them to have, but to get it in the wrong way. For example, and this is so common today that they're obtaining intimacy unlawfully. Young people, God wants you to experience intimacy. In fact, that's a wonderful gift He has for you but only within the bounds of His plan for you. God may have a life's partner for you, but not outside His requirements for one of His children. God has beautiful friends for you, but not the kind of friends that His Word warns about. 
God has a job for you to do, but not one that's going to compromise your faith. God wants many things for you that are meant to be for your good. But obtaining them has to be within the scope of His plan that's laid out in His Word because that's where the blessing comes from. Well, our Lord Himself with all that was owed Him as the Creator of all things did not stoop to stepping out of the exact and lawful path prescribed for someone who is born under the law. Now, it's a tremendous thing to listen to a musician who gets all the notes right. That music is a fixed object. The composer put every note there and every indication of how he wanted it to be played. And people who understand music and they know the piece will listen and they're delighted when it's finished if every note was played with the exact timing and nuance. In other words, the piece was played the way it was written. Well, your life and my life is intended by God to be pre-planned and written like that. There are notes that need to be played in my life. Paul puts it in these terms. We are God's workmanship. And it is a praise to Him when those notes are hit just right. I mean, do you, think, do you think that you could compose the piece more beautifully than God did? Well, every man's life is a plan of God, and it will be our greatest honor to walk the path just as God has prescribed it, and to have all of the notes and all of the sounds and all of the, the timing come out just like He arranged it. That starts with being a man or a woman or a child who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night and it orders his steps one by one. David said, your word is a light to my path and it will be a light to yours as well. So I want to encourage you this morning to take the Lord's example by believing that his way is best for your life. And that the very thing you may be tempted with this morning, even a good thing, something you have every reason to believe is the will of God for you, but you're being seduced into obtaining it in a way that violates the Word of God. All right, you need to be, you need to be as decisive and scriptural and inflexible as our Lord. You need to believe that if you give in, You've just given service to someone other than to the Lord God of heaven. The Bible says, to whom you yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey in that moment. Now thank God our Lord experienced all of this and he did what the first Adam did not do. First Adam was defeated. The last Adam was a victor. The first Adam plunged our entire race into ruin. But we can participate in the last Adam's victory by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul teaches this in Romans 5. He says that all our righteousness and all our plea is that Jesus Christ lived completely undefiled. 
He lived entirely apart from the category of sinners. He did it not only because it was necessary for himself, but he did it as a substitute for us. This active righteousness of Christ, his complete obedience is given to us as a substitutionary way. And it enables us, in spite of all our failures and all our defeats in the face of temptation, it still enables us to have every confidence that when we approach the Lord on a morning like this in prayer, when you're sitting in your seat, you're asking God to minister to you in the service, you have every confidence that God will not push you away. He's not going to refuse your cry. But He heard you. Because in spite of your failures, in spite of your struggles with temptation and sin, you've been accepted. You're accepted in the Beloved One, Jesus Christ, who is your righteousness. What a wonderful thing. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father, as we come to the end of our study in the temptations of Christ, we are so blessed that He is our peace, and He is our righteousness, and He is our substitute. Lord, as we walk this life, we recognize that we will never do it perfectly, but He did it for us. So we rest in Him. And we ask, Lord, that when temptations do come, to cut corners, to do things the world's way, we're tempted to give service to someone other than you, Lord, that, that we would have Scripture come immediately to our minds and that we would be reminded that we need to be worshiping you only. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you as your children, as your people, as living stones in this temple. And we ask that we would be holy in a world that is pulling us in every direction. Help us to keep our course at true north. Love and obey your scripture. Because it is our guide and it is eternal. It is absolute truth. And Father, we love you for giving it to us. So bless our lives this week and help us to live by that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.